What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is rapper, barber, fashion designer, documentary filmmaker, podcast host, professor, and mother, Tiffany Marie, whose band is called Artelia Green and the Bandanas. Tiffany, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It is very much my pleasure today. Um, I, I started trying to make that list of things that you do, and as per usual with you, I was humbled. You do so many things that it's very difficult for me to keep track of. I think it's probably best to start from the ground up. Um, so let's go way back. San Francisco has played a huge role in your life and in your heart. Can you talk about what the city meant to you as a kid growing up and how it has shaped you? Uh, Frisco from Baby Hunters Point, 94124. You know, it's um, it's my home. And sadly, I you know, because of gentrification and capitalism, the high cost of living. I can't be there. But when I frequent it with my daughter, my partner, it reminds me of so much of who I am and why I'm the way I am. You know, whether we're at Golden Gate Park or Dolores Park where we went this past weekend or just looking at the fashion uh, that still exists, the remnants of it. Um, what we call Frisco Swagger and just the places that I grew up. Um, you know, it's a place where I returned to teach and um, where I initially began my music career. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a, a sense of home and being there grounds me in integrity. Um, and I, you know, come from three generations of folk from San Francisco. My grandma arrived on November 11th, 1957, and we've been going hard since then. Well, and you mentioned that you started your music career there. You're also, I mean, I I read this list earlier. You're certainly a musician. You're also a fashion designer, barber, educator, so many other things. I'm wondering if you can think back what was the first art form that like really drew you in, in a way that made you feel engaged enough to work on and, and take seriously to improve your skills and Mm. and what was life like for you at like paint us a little picture. Mm. That's such an interesting question, you know, because in thinking about artistry, so much of it, uh, we think about it in our adulthood, but going back to Northridge Point very recently where I was born and standing on those stairs um, brought back so many memories, particularly one prominent one is watching music videos with my mom and uh, Cindy Lauper coming on the, <laughs> the screen. Uh-huh. Um, and just the, it's not irony, but the, the world's colliding of being in Baby Hunter's Point and jamming to 80s music, you know, back in the day and being super afraid of that video. What is that? Time After Time? Is that the song? Mm -hmm. Just being super afraid of it, of like she had like in my memory, because this may not be actually what I saw, but she had like 
half her head shaved or something. And she had like a, like this checker hairstyle. That's how I saw it as a child. And I believe at the time I was terrified of it, but, um, I mean, it's very similar to my hairstyle now, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, and I think that's hilarious that I talk about the foundation of my music and artistry being this white woman. But, um, I think in a lot of ways there was like a querying of art and expression that goes back to that video and being particularly in Bayview at that time. And there's just, like I said, those worlds colliding, which very much is indicative of the continuation of my art and my socialization. You know, we moved out of Bayview because of the violence. Someone, when I was very young, um, they were shooting over my head. And so we moved to South San Francisco and I was surrounded by white folks and just that double consciousness, which, you know, is eventually became a song um, with, with our group. Just that was played a fundamental role in the formation of my identity and my artistic expression of having to navigate these multiple worlds and doing it in really creative ways. And so when we were in South San Francisco, as a result of, at the first time in my life being pushed out of San Francisco, um, that's where I just remember learning um, Summertime, DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince and like playing it on a, a tape deck and having a piece of paper and playing it and pausing it and writing the lyrics and memorizing it for my own little private performances in the house. So San Francisco, of course, was the impetus for a lot of it, but the surrounding areas also continue to cultivate my gift and my art. So you mentioned Summertime as as one of those early songs that you really tried to track the process of, of rapping. <laughs> yeah. You think of that as an early experience of, of you learning how to express yourself through art? Yeah. I mean, I loved... And it's hilarious to reflect on this because I was like six or seven, I feel like. And I, I'm i fascinated with younger Tiffany, like wanting to rap in the first place. Like, that's fascinating to me. What is this little girl, like, why is she wanting to rap? You know, so yeah, being there in that, that tape deck and... um you know, at that time, it's such a different, it, it requires so much more time and energy to do music at that time, whether you're like, I remember also putting balls of uh, tissue into pre-existing tapes and creating my first mixtapes um, from recording on the radio. And so this interview is powerful because I hadn't really attributed so much of my artistry from coming from such a young age, but that was a time of extreme creative expression. I was playing around with a lot, you know, as a basketball player and the leagues didn't at that time have girls in them. And so I played with all boys. So I was constantly throughout the development and formation of my um, identities, um, having to navigate these different worlds and expressions in being able to cultivate my own. Well, you've also spent a lot of time 
professionally thinking about, and I'm sure also personally thinking about, the development of young people, children's development, development in schools, development in education. I'm wondering if what you're just talking about um, is is part of your framing of how you think of children's creativity. I mean, you're bringing yourself back to, I don't know, maybe age six or so mm-hmm. with this, but also just the context of little kids having some certain sense of freedom and, and being less restricted by the world that we're in. Mm-hmm. You know, that's fascinating because around the same time, I'm in elementary school and experiencing some of the most intense and formative forms of discrimination. And so I'm thinking about that in relationship to my creative expression. And um, I have a very pivotal memory of, you know, being one of four Black children in the entire school. My brother also went there. <laughs> so we brought 50% of the, pop- the Black population. And um, just, you know, suppose I married Travis in the tan bark. And I remember him telling me he couldn't marry me in our little pseudo um, elementary school marriage because I was Black. I remember um, in that same year, like, um, having... My my friend at the time, Day Davison, um, leaving the country to the Philippines for a while and knowing that I was going to get some new friends by sharing my Lisa Frank stickers with uh, my classmates and putting them on all their desks at recess one day as a surprise. And my teacher's reaction to scream at me in front of all my classmates and tell me to walk around the room and clean the desks and take the stickers off. You know, and that was around the same time that I was recommended for special education. Uh, my mom eventually pulled me out of that school and we actually went back to Bayview. That's a whole nother conversation. But it's really powerful to think about the interconnection between the embodiment of what I now know as toxic stress, racialized toxic stress, and then this yearning and leaning into rap music particularly as a form of expression of my outrage um, when I didn't I don't think at that time I had other outlets besides rebellion and theft I was like a really interesting thief at the time <laughs> so there was a lot of like rebellion and so art through rap particularly um I think was the most suitable medium. Now as an educator, I have so much more understanding of how children hold our nation's grief, how young people are constantly trying to access spaces of joy and slowness and reconciliation in the midst of a lot of mess and turmoil at the hands of adults who themselves refuse to slow down, to engage in play, to access their inner child. And so my greatest um, models of education with young people engaged a memory of my most challenging times in schools as a way to disrupt and attenuate Uh, 
those impacts and experiences for other young people. We are going to get a little bit more into the latter part of what you said, but I have to ask a quick follow-up question. Yep. You were an interesting thief. What were you what were you stealing <laughs> when you were a small child? I mean, no need to incriminate yourself on air, but No, I can't do that, but let's just say I I like had a lot of collectors items that uh well, items that became collectors items that were not mine initially. And I don't talk about it a lot, but um because it it was so antithetical to who I was at the time, but it's such a fascinating fact when I really think about it. Um, and as, and a sense of maybe both em, embodying and internalizing my perception of what people already thought about me. And, um, I think some critical form of resistance to kind of the culture of whiteness that was slowly working to kill me. I think that unfortunately is the perfect transition into where I want to go next because from that experience I know you just described it as your own personal experience as a kid and especially in schooling context now as an adult as a professional and as a professor and academic you've developed I guess something of a theory that you've called apocalyptic education <laughs> talking about school abolition it, what is apocalyptic education? Oh man, you know it's um, we name <laughs> it as a um, a meditation, a posture, and a epistemological stance that declares schools dead. And um, I identify as a recovering academic, actually, much like. Mm. Um, those who face other addictions, you may make a stance that you're done with it, but being clean and getting clean is a lifelong process, which is also why I'm still a part of the academy. And so some of my doctoral research began to study biomarkers of health and the impact of young people's lived experiences on their bodies. And in short, what I was finding was that teenagers across varying academic uh, achievement levels were, they had the physiological makeup of folk who were in their 60s who were breast cancer survivors. That's to say that our young people who were um, excelling, so to speak, in schools were rapidly dying. And we tend to use these markers like GPA, attendance, college matriculation as uh, markers of well-being and success, when in this country, Black women with PhDs still die earlier than white women who are high school dropouts. And, you know, when we delve into public health data, we can understand these discrepancies when we disaggregate the data. So when I'm working with young people, I began more recently because I was one of those folks who was pushing and pushing for access to higher education and believing that that was a route to upward mobility and greater peace. Uh, that's what I had been told. That's That was the ticket out of Bayview, Hunter's Point. That was the, the, the means toward um, greater lives and lives more abundantly. But um, with the data and learning about this data, 
and the reality of just speaking with, you know, like refusing to ignore my cousins and other family member and friends who had been devastating, devastatingly impacted by schools and schooling. I began to want to be grounded more in integrity. Um, so when my colleague and I, Kendris Watson, would share these findings with folks, whether they were educators or friends, because he was also doing work with biomarkers of health at UCLA with Black men who were in STEM and other fields and deemed very successful, we were seeing the same things, but they were dying rapidly. And so we would share this with folks and they said that, um, they said our work seemed very apocalyptic. And we said, well, let's go with that, you know? In thinking about our primary objective is to shift from schooling, which we see as a way to maintain uh, the existing society's oppressive norms towards sites of education that are about um, maintaining the cultural medicines that sustain a people. And so we call our work apocalyptic education, which grounds itself in uh, consciousness that supports young people and communities to understand that which is dead from that which is living, because sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Um, into culture, our cultural medicines and practices, and the power of community. And we ground those three things in what we call an apocalyptic education because an apocalypse is only intimidating and harmful to those people who are benefiting from the current society. But those who have been the ones whose backs have been stepped on as a way to maintain the capitalist structure, those whose suffering has served as a way for others to stand and to exist and to thrive, then we're the ones who are actually excited about an apocalypse. And so we, we, we deem our work in apocalyptic education as a way to celebrate the demise of schooling, to celebrate the demise of Western society, really, and its harmful colonial settler politics and ways of being so that everyone can thrive. Because even those who believe that they benefit from it, they're, they're dying as well and they're suffering as well. They just don't have the consciousness to both understand and admit that. So if we're in the apocalypse of education and celebrating that, what does a post-apocalyptic world look like? You know, that's such a powerful and important question, because when we talk about abolition, whether it's prison abolition or school abolition, which is so new, um, so much of the conversation is on the destruction of it and very little on the envisioning and dreaming of the of the what next. And those critical in abolitionist studies say that really 20% should be dismantling and 80% should be dreaming and envisioning and imagining. And um, through Apocalyptic Ed, we have three analogous markers that help us to dream toward that, which we call remembered futures, because where we're going is nothing necessarily that we need to create, but it's something that we need to remember and we honor Black people as Indigenous people, and we honor others as Indigenous people as well. Maybe not Indigenous to these lands, not Indigenous to Turtle Island, but Indigenous to somewhere. And we come from places that have means of sustainability, 
that have educational paradigms that are enriching and empowering rather than subtractive. We have communal ways of being and languages and ceremonies and stories and proverbs that are fundamentally responsible for our well-being and what we were understanding when we incorporated Western science and public health is the outcomes of what we were seeing in my research anyway that was supporting in the prolonging of young people's lives, the added cellular protection on their bodies really was just reflective of our ancestral ways of being. And so where we're going and what that means recalls a very sacred memory work for those of us who know about our indigeneity, but who know that we have been cut off from it, disconnected from it through various forms of colonization. And that's what I've attempted to do and a lot of us have continued to do within the Apocalyptic Ed Network, as well as our collective communities um, of, of, of healing and practice through sacred memory work. So speaking of sacred memory work, I want to transition us to a conversation about your band, Artelia Green and the Bandanas. Yeah. Can you bridge us in the through line sacred memory work and your music and also tell us about the origin of the name. Yeah. I, you know, today's an interesting day because I just got off another interview um, talking about Artelia Green, who's my great grandmother. And, you know, to describe her when she was alive, I, I didn't really have that many memories of her. I know at one point she was a sharecropper. And my time with her, I just, I was scared of her in the ways in which Western society fears elders, you know? She just seemed mean and distant. And uh, I think that's reflective of the lack of intergenerational culture. But um, through sacred memory work, I learned that I can develop a relationship with her after she transitioned from this realm and so I learned so much more about her, that she was intimately connected to the land, that she would leave and just travel for periods of time. Um, folks wouldn't know where she was. And sometimes she'd come back married and <laughs> other times she'd come back with new practices. Um, and I just, I just became so fascinated with that agency amidst um, a society that tells you you're a sharecropper. That's fascinating to me because we are living those histories now uh, through mass incarceration, through state sanctioned violence and the creation of ghettos and um, cages that uh, the open cages that we are, are forced to live within. It was powerful to learn that um, that those are um, descriptions but of our positionalities, but those are not our identities. And so learning about her and developing a relationship with her, um, it, it inspired me to want to continue to remain grounded in, in, in those forms of integrity. And so what better way than to name my artistic expression after her um, as a way to both continue to honor my ancestor, but also uh, remain in deep relationship with her. And so when we perform live, we go by Artelia Green and the Bandanas uh, because she she's known for her 
her bandanas when she was working in the field. Um, and then was, you know, incredibly uh, fly, I imagine, as she was traveling. And I like to think about and honor that history and that heritage of resilience and strength and power and also mystery and the unknown, uh, which I think very much encapsulates Artelia Green and especially in our live performances with Artelia Green and the bandanas. If you were to try and in words describe the sound, feel, and lyrical content of the band, Mm -hmm. of of your music, Mm -hmm. how would you do that? (sighs) It's like the the great-grandchildren of... uh, It's the offspring of like Stevie Wonder and um, church-stomping gospel hymns with deep intimate romance with Lauren Hill and an attempt at getting an autograph from Corey Henry during his live performances. I think, I think all of those braided together uh, with a lot more, right? We're funk. We have brass going on there. Um, we have djembe. It's the essence of, of black spirituality outside of the context of the colonial church it's the it's the heartbeat of the drum. It's the reverberance of um, our ancestors' songs and their ongoing reminder of their love for us. And it's the echoing of um, the door that we will return to. You know, when we were placed on ships, you know, when my ancestors were placed on ships, um, I, vil- I visited the Elmina castles and um, they went through what's called the door of no return. Um, but I think Artelia Green represents the door of return and the pathway to uh, our remembered futures. Can you bring us right into the music? Can, uh, can you share an acapella verse for us? Yeah, something new or something old? Give us something new. Something new. <laughs> Something that's going to be on the new record. We haven't really talked about the record that's going to be coming out soon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, we we got a new joint. Um, it's going to drop sometime next year, but our first single, Ghetto Children Funk, is coming out uh, November 10th. And um, I'll spit a verse from that. The first verse says, Any kid that survives the hood's a superhero, surviving wars for four scores and white man's ego. No cream, so we use water in our cereal. Chin checks and litmus tests, so I know what you know. I'm from the hill in Frisco. We true gold. Layered up and laid back. We too cold. Move quick, don't slip before your shoes gone. But classmates is gone following street codes. And then I'm going to go into the second verse because I think it's a lot more uh, healing. And it's in response to um, that first verse is contextualizing what I grew up in and navigating horizontal violence. Um, but also naming that horizontal violence, the interpersonal violence that we enact on each other comes from vertical violence. And we don't tend to look up uh, in terms of the source of it. But that second verse is reflective of me visiting this brother's farm in Atlanta. He came from East Oakland and he um, he created, he cultivated a farm in just three years. And when the pandemic hit and the elders couldn't go to the stores, he fed an entire community from his farm. And so the second verse is 
inspired by him. It says, when the world stopped, I met this brother from Easto, his hair locked, hands deep, planting the seeds with nowhere to go to, elders could feed on, food for thought, and the food that he grow. He taught me that God was in the growth, that he could feed the block with the ways of the Seminole. He passed on some things to know and some truths that should never be told, namely the path of freedom you own. You think they're happy when you get old? When ghetto kids take flight with their conquer on, when caged birds get a new home, when your mama say, take your time, young one, and you could build your own, his eyes closed and palms up, singing Nam Yo, like Detroit Red, letting them naps grow, like El Boogie, letting y'all niggas know, with peace of mind, it could all be so simple. Tiffany Marie, thank you so much for spending the morning with me. We're going to have to wrap it up. That's the voice of this week's resistance in residence artist, rapper, barber, fashion designer, documentary filmmaker, podcast host, professor, (laughs) mother, and everything else, Tiffany Marie. (laughs) Tiffany is the band leader of Artelia Green and the Bandanas, and you can check them out at arteliagreen.com. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance in Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.